Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were joined by Jessica Ryko, who is a professor here at ASU in the School of Film, Dance, and Theater. Jessica has been with us before on the podcast. She is a somatic practitioner and a dancer, and we always love having repeat guests so that we can deepen our conversation. And to Jessica, we added Rich Goldsand, who is an adjunct faculty member here at ASU, also in the School of Film, Dance, and Theater. Rich is also a somatic practitioner, and specifically a practitioner of Feldenkrais, which is a, uh, a movement-based practice. And if you're not familiar with it, well, we'll talk you through it a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. Rich and Jessica both have um, their faculty pages here at the ASU website so that you can access Jessica. Her last name is Raiko, R-A-J-K-O. So you can find her if you're interested in her work, which is fascinating. And then Rich also has a website related to his Feldenkrais practice, which is www.feldenkrais-goldsand.net. And I'm going to spell that because that is the kind of accessible practitioner I am. www.feldenkrais.net. F-E-L-D-E-N-K-R-A-I-S hyphen G-O-L-D-S-A-N-D dot net. So now you have all of the URLs, all of the digits, and you can learn more about Jessica and Rich both. But first, uh, before we get to today's episode, Thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, for being here with us on the Future Out Loud podcast. This was just one of the episodes that we love to do where we dig into a topic that might not seem obvious and might not seem like an obvious site for science and technology policy, but we do get to those places in this podcast that took us a little bit outside of our comfort zones, at least for Andrew and me. So thank you for being here with us. You can find us on social media at Future Out Loud on Twitter or on Facebook, and you can also find all of our old episodes in places like SoundCloud or Google Play or the iTunes Podcast Store or on our website, www.futureoutloud.org. And without further ado, on with this episode where Andrew and I were joined by Jessica Ryko and Rich Goldsand to talk about technology and sensing and somatic practices. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hi, Rich. Hi, Heather. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Heather. Welcome, everybody. We're going to talk about sensor technologies and movement, and this is my harebrained idea to bring us all together. Um... Because podcast listeners will remember that Jessica, we talked about sensor technologies and movement. And then Rich, it, you do Feldenkrais. You were a Feldenkrais practitioner. 
and you were kind enough to invite me for a Feldenkrais session where I embarrassingly had a vagal reaction and almost lost consciousness and did not feel so well, which made me understand very clearly that there is something going on with little movement that was perceptible to me externally that made a really significant internal reaction. And I thought, ah, there should be sensors to be able to sense this. But we don't have those. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. So maybe, well, let's start with Feldenkrais because, Rich, probably a lot of people aren't familiar with this. I'm, I'm guessing most listeners probably aren't right. familiar with it. Yeah. So let's uh, change but, that. Um, well... More now because of uh, the New York Times article, but but uh, in the BuzzFeed, um, but Moshe Feldenkrais was a physicist, uh, an engineer. Uh, actually, has this really interesting life where he grew up in South Ukraine, immigrated by himself at those times while the pogroms were going on to Palestine at the time. Uh, he's there. He injures his knee, rehabilitates, goes to. Saborn gets his degree in uh, physics and engineering and, and meets the uh, Professor Kano, who is the developer of modern judo. Okay. And from that, he starts learning how to sense himself more clearly. Right? And he's getting his physics degree and he's getting his engineering degree. And judo is this thing about this art of movement. It's not about efforting. It's about how you feel yourself in gravity, okay, which goes along with the physics, mm-hmm. right, and engineering. And so he learns to rehabilitate his knee that he injured a long time ago um, by creating these ways of moving that are an exploration in how the nervous system feels patterns, okay, and allows the nervous system to create a new pattern by having a sensory feedback loop into knowing that oh, maybe there's another way to do this and then feeling that and then uh, letting the nervous system take over and create a different pattern. Once a different pattern takes over, then the old pattern kind of uh, falls apart, you know, and that, it's still there in the background, but, but uh, a newer pattern will emerge uh, and it'll be more dominant than the old one. So okay. That's kind of how we go about doing stuff. Okay. And... So Feldenkrais, so Moshe Feldenkrais developed this technique for rehabilitation for, for a joint himself. injury for himself. Um, and is that still mainly how Feldenkrais is used? No, it is one major way, but um, there are other ways to increase performance. Uh, athletes that I work with, from Olympians to you know weekend warriors, mm-hmm. and all kinds of people. Um, but let's say for kids, children, I work with lots of children from autism to CP to muscular dystrophy. And you've met, I think you've met my daughter, Annie. Yeah. Also, who, that's how I got into the work. She was helped by it. She was a graduate of ASU. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, uh, no, there's a, it, as long as there's a nervous system there's, and, and the ability to learn, change then Feldenkrais can improve that. So so the process is it largely sort of in your head then in the brain in terms of how your brain sort of um, 
responds to signals from the nervous system and then sends out other signals, yeah. or is it far more integrated? It's very integrated. Right. It's a very, right. very feedback loop mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. uh, internal, external. Um, but your body is learning sort of new patterns. And yes. Yes. yes, yes. So there's a felt sense that we say, uh, mm -hmm. uh, sensory feedback, so you, and you can have this idea of, well, I'm moving easier. How is that happening? Or in your case, mm -hmm. Heather, when, when I moved and just touched your shoulder ever mm -hmm. so gently, and then your system went, well, this is a completely different pattern and how I'm available to do it. Mm -hmm. And it kind of sent, kind of like, well, hang on here. I have to kind of take it easy, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's kind of how it goes. So, so realizing that this is audio only, we're sort of in radio space. Yes, yes. yes. I, I don't know whether you can sort of help visualize how yeah. this actually works. Well, it, you know, if, if, if we do this and we can kind of talk yourselves through this, if we all sit at the front of our chairs, right? And, yes, and I noticed, by the way, that so one of the things that you told me was because I immediately sit down and cross my legs right. and you're like, no, no, this is not how your body is intended to be. All four of us were crossing our legs and I realize that this is so I've got to tell, tell you that nurses that I've known have always told me that this is wrong. So coming from you with your medical background, I'm shocked. <laughs> well, 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 no, I mean, Rich said, like, because I would always sit way in the back right. of my chair and, like, cross my legs at the ankles because I'm a lady. But, you know, um, that is not how our skeletons are intended right. to right. line up. Right. Yeah, so I, I did notice that all four of us were sitting back in our chairs <laughs> right. with our legs, legs crossed. crossed. <laughs> right. Very much, very much. So, so it, it, in this context of just audio, but it, we're sitting forward in our chairs, and, and if you could just take a moment to uh, internalize, as we were mm -hmm. talking about, uh, which um, sit bone or which foot you, you can feel clearer. You know, I, I, you know, we all have a, a tendency to have a, a, a bias to one side, right? And, um, and then, in, in, we don't have to do anything with it except just kind of put it in the back of your, your uh, back pocket. And if you just do this simple little thing, if we all, um, uh, whichever side we're feeling clear, if we take the opposite hand and place that on top of our head, Okay, and then we keep that attached there, and we bring that elbow that's attached to our head, the hand that's attached, and bring that very gently to towards that hip, right? And just really softly, and then we come back, right? And then we do it again, and we come back, right? And we put our hand down, right? Now from that, just see if you feel if if the the sense of your foot or your hip joint has changed from just doing it just slightly. So actually, interestingly, I'm far more um, aware of that foot now than I was when I started. Mm -hmm. Right, yes. right. So, so the feedback that you're right. talking you about, that. that information goes to your system and goes, oh, you want me to go this way. Right. So I feel that and then you go. So that's how we use that information to help that pattern become more available and or become more known and then it goes from that idea to well how can I give that person another way to do the same right, functional right, idea. Right, mm -hmm. right. So now Jessica, you as a movement practitioner, you just did the same exercise with us. Um, how did that work for you? Because you have a very different relationship with your body than I do or than Andrew does. Probably a similar relationship to your body that Rich has with his. Well it's funny um, because I think, and this comes 
So I'm just to contextualize, I'm both sort of somatic practitioner and a dancer. And so a lot of times these things are seen as related, mm -hmm. but a lot of dance practices, as we know, can have really detrimental effects on bodies. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have really strange complex patterning. So for me, um, I feel a cross lateral connection of emphasis as opposed to a body half connection. So rather than right foot, right hip, it's right foot, left hip. Mm. Um, and so this is, it's fascinating to me. And, and, and it, these moments we do and we these kind of check-ins we do a lot in what we call somatically informed dance practices or dance practices that work with these somatic principles and somatic values to maintain a longevity and a sustainability to our practices um, that are informed by somatic practices such as Feldenkrais or Alexander Technique mm -hmm. or Bartinian fundamentals in these other forms. So for me, it's always such a pleasure. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, we, but dancers like, and practitioners of all kinds, we are constantly in situations where we're not being asked to have this sort of distributed awareness of our bodies. And so for me, it's such a pleasure to have these moments in, in contexts that are outside of the studio. So, mm -hmm. so two things you said there really fascinated me. So you've, you've got this idea that as a practitioner, you're far more aware of patterning inside your body um, mm -hmm. than most of us are. And yet you've got this sense that uh, certainly with some dancers, they're not aware of how they can control that in ways in which are beneficial. Correct. So you're working in this space, but not necessarily in the best possible way sometimes. Yeah, and I so this is where one of the things I'm really specific about when I write and when I talk is that I have a somatically informed dance practice. We can think of a very obvious practice to many of us, which is ballet. Now, ballet historically was brought up through a concert dance aesthetic in which the intention of that work was to please an audience, mm -hmm. right? So you can feel that in the practice itself as an outside looking in mentality, which in some ways would, af would have deeper affinities to maybe scientific practices of a third person observer having the knowledge rather than a somatically oriented practice where it's saying, me as the person who's doing the practice has more knowledge about my own body and what I need than somebody who's watching from the outside. Right. Yeah. So sometimes what people will bring in somatic practices to forms that don't necessarily, and I do this, I teach contemporary ballet, um, is what we're doing is we're kind of undoing that pedagogical model of outside looking in and right. saying, well, what can we do with this form that sort of in, we can inform ourselves based on our own anatomy, our own sort of awareness, how can we deepen that to do ballet to achieve that virtuosity that we expect from it, but also, you know, be able to do that into our 30s. So I've, I've, <laughs> right. I, I, hopefully this won't take us off on a tangent, but I've got to ask how this then translates into modern dance, because my mm. experience is that that's far more about the, the individual expressing something rather yeah. than just trying to please an external audience. Correct, and I think it's a bit of both, and it depends. I mean, there's so many. We can kind of lump it together, but I like to, so one of the things I say to people is you can imagine modern dance as sort of like the indie of film, indie, mm -hmm. indie film series. Right? So it's more about who's doing the work than it is about sort of an ideal form. We can go back to classical modern forms like um, Graham Technique or Horton Technique where somebody made a specific technique, but since the sort of postmodern era moved into this idea of, in part because of influences from somatic practices, was more about sort of understanding one's own individual experience and expressing through there, and then facilitating from that as opposed to having that sort of dogma, of, this is a technique, I made it on my body, you will learn what my body wants to do, right. and sort of take that on. Right, mm -hmm. right. It's sort of allowing people to have a shared experience, so we work more in 
frames of movement um, rather than sort of codified it techniques a lot of times. And it's not to say that people aren't creating their own new codified techniques. Right. But you get a different sense of it and you can feel it. Um, there's a really lovely article by Cecilia de Lima that talks about this idea of dances and body technology, which is sort of, for me, again, coming back to this sort of somatically informed dance practice way of understanding through this sort of experience of movement if we attune ourselves in the way that Rich was just talking about to what's happening and and how our bodies are responding to these activities even if they're incredibly rigorous we'll learn something different than if we just try to achieve an, like a visual aesthetic right. so that's something I think is is grounded in a lot of um, modern dance but I wouldn't say is exclusive to right yeah right and I just for our listeners we should explain what somatic means yes yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, Rich, do you want to talk about it first from a Feldenkrais perspective? Well, uh, it's actually interesting because one of the things that I listened to was, and we all are, uh, have this in us, is that we talk about our body. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is, is they talk about the whole self. Mm-hmm. And it's a different kind of an idea than talking about how the body gets... We use the, the body as the feedback system, as, the, as part of the whole. Mm-hmm. And so the whole self, how does that... So when we say, okay, well, now I can feel you know, my right hip or my left hip or a cross-lateral, homeolateral, whatever it is. And then we go, well, okay, how does that kind of feed back into how do I think about that? What am I doing mm-hmm. when I'm doing that pattern? And how, do, and how do I feel about that, what it is that I'm doing? And am I joyous about that? Am I sad about that? Am I angry about that? And how does that mm-hmm. affect uh, ourselves? So the somatics in itself means of the body, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's really kind of a not the best title, but it's the one that we go with. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a recent book by Martha Eddy, it just came out, um, and she goes through sort of the history of the many somatic practices and uh, talks about Feldenkrais in that. And one of the things that's talked about a lot with somatic practices is getting to that root of soma. And soma talking about the lived body or this idea of a living body, which is different than a body. So we can think of a body as sort of our flesh and bone, our anatomy. But once we talk about soma, we're talking about a lived body, a moving body, Mm -hmm. which is incorporating emotion, is incorporating consciousness, incorporating cognition. And we're seeing it as sort of, instead of putting it in this implicit hierarchy, which we oftentimes do, particularly in academic disciplines who come from scientific lineages, where cognition is seen as a forefront, or is at least separated from body, right, that the two talk to each other, Mm -hmm. and that they're separate, which kind of has that Cartesian dualism sort of perspective, Mm -hmm. is that it's much more distributed and sort of flattened out. And it's not to say that cognition or brain activity isn't a part of it, but it's not central. It's not everything. Yeah, it's not everything. And it's not, um, and it sort of takes the body out of a utilitarian perspective of tool yep. that we're using the body as a tool for our cognition to enact in the world, but that it's actually, you know, if we think of our brain as part of our body, which mm-hmm. it is, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a structure within our body, we can start to look at co-informing relationality across the body as opposed to this idea of like a top-down tiering. Yeah. So that then... Um, is very to me that's important when we then talk about the work that you and I have been doing right. with wearable devices and this notion of and just what you said that you know the body is a tool right and there's this sort of top-down hierarchy mm-hmm. and the wearable devices that we have that inform movement and intention and behavior 
seem to do exactly that and treat the body as a tool to for these devices to sense movement and we can talk about how the limitations of that and then to feed back information that would um, go into this hierarchical structure to tell one's intention or you know cognition to uh, use this tool of the body differently. And one of the things that we've found um, in our work and with our other partners in the Border Quants Project is that there's significant limitations mm -hmm. with what available technologies have. Right. And it occurred to me when I was having the Feldenkrais um, experience with you, Rich, that there is something happening here mm -hmm. and I don't think we have sensors, wearable or implantable or humanly usable sensors mm. to capture this, but it seems to me like there's a physiologic response that we so, ought to be so able to So there should be something that we can capture. But, right, but as part right. of that, and so one of the things that immediately strikes me is, are we trying to make everything into a nail with our sensors? Mm -hmm. So are we actually subsuming or getting rid of the things that we can actually naturally sense mm -hmm. and replacing them with really, really crude things that <laughs> yes. actually don't give us what we need? Right. Well, I think so. Oh, yes. Well, so here's a, here's a really interesting question. One of the things that Moshe actually was somebody, and it's in a similar take of it, somebody said, well, explain the experience of having a Feldenkrais lesson. And Moshe said, well, explain to me what an apricot tastes like. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Well, it's sweet and sour. Well, what's sweet <laughs> and sour? Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Right? So when somebody comes and has any kind of somatic uh, experience, Feldenkrais, Alexander, whatever, they bring to themselves all of their experiences that, that they've had mm -hmm. prior to that, all the living experiences that they've had. So they lay down on the table, and then you touch them, and you touch them in a way to inform, not to change, then all those experiences are based upon what you're trying to measure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that then allows for the measurable of, you know, somebody says, well, I feel more spacious now. Mm. Well, well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, and how do you put that into a wristband, right? right. 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 Exactly. It's exactly. my spaciousness. Yeah. 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 How do you do that? What does that mean? Yeah. So I think yeah. that that's a, that's a, and I don't have the answer. I, I mean, yeah. What does it, you know? When people say to me, "Well, what is it like to get a lesson?" I said, "Well, what does an apricot taste like?" Mm -hmm. So to me, it's uh, I'm I'm ready and listening to anybody who's got <laughs> any answers to that. Yeah. I, I don't know, uh, but I think that that one of the things that that Moshe was very clear about was that he wanted this this experience that we're talking about to be mm -hmm. taken quite seriously on a scientific level. And one of the things that he was really wished that he would live longer about was to be able to have the scientific community, which is now mm -hmm. going in that direction, look into the ability of, mm -hmm. of, of the measurements of change, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know, you know, is it changing the brain? Is it changing yeah. the rest of the whole self? I'm not sure. All of the above. Yes. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above. Um, you know, there's two, like, and I'm going to talk very specifically right now about consumer wearable technology, thinking about things like the Fitbit, which I think most of the listeners will mm -hmm. be aware of, or anything that falls into that sort of consumer right. self-quantification model. There's two big issues I have um, coming from a somatic perspective with those. The first is the black boxing, mm -hmm. right, um, in which people have no access or control over how that like an, an understanding of the deeper forms of measurement that are being utilized in the software that's encoded into these devices, mm -hmm. which gives a sort of like a sort of um, 
designer authoritarian model where the designer gets to decide how you're measured and what you're measured and then you have some control over how you want to contextualize that but ultimately the system itself is already set the other issue i have with this is that it does this sort of automatic splitting right so we're not um a lot of art practices that use technology work in this area of called real-time responsiveness or real-time processing. And the intention for that, particularly when we're looking at bodies in relationship to technology, is that whatever this system is understanding is giving me back information about that in real time. And if we go back to the example, this little um, exercise we just did with Rich, we're being asked to experience these things in the moment in which it's happening, Mm -hmm. so that we are informed by the specific context in which we are having that experience. Mm -hmm. Now with a lot of wearable technologies, we are saying, go about your day, wear this thing, blah, 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 don't pay attention. And then this data is somehow going to inform you mm-hmm. deeply about what happened. But you've already shed all of that rich mm. contextual information mm-hmm. that is being utilized in somatic practices. So again, it's reinforcing that sort of Cartesian dualism right. model mm-hmm. where we have this, we do a thing and that we can somehow cognitively, passively go back to it and be re-enriched. And I don't really think that's necessarily possible. Now, I, cause I want to, I, I sound like a super pessimist. And I know that because I mostly am. But I will say, Heather, some of the research that you've been doing has given me a different understanding of where this might be useful. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to something that is talked a lot about in somatics, which is called this whole part whole methodology, where we look at things holistically. We might dig down into a detail, but we always bring it back into the whole uh-huh. context. Now, what I found with a lot of people who go about their day without being really consciously aware of their own bodies mm-hmm. is that there, there is a sort of a ground zero where it's, we don't necessarily know. And, and there are situations where it's in, incredibly pertinent and important that people need to know if it's like heart-related issues, yes. disease-related issues, diabetes, whatever it might be. And I can see this tool, and I've heard about this tool of like consumer wearable tech, mm-hmm. giving people an everyday, like just being a reminder of like mm-hmm. being more aware. And right. in that way, okay, I can see it as a starting point but it's definitely for me like a starting point to this whole part whole yep. journey it's like introducing into it for me it's it's not really even a part of that journey <laughs> so, so what is so interesting to me here is you've got two sides of this you've got tech companies who think i've got a bit of tech that can measure something let's mm-hmm. see how we can market this and we've got something like the the both of you who can see a complex system and you can see ways of, of training that mm-hmm. um, so if I was to ask you, could you make people's lives better through awareness of their body without any of this tech? Could you? Oh, that's what I do. So then we've got to ask, sort of, where is the role of technology here? Are we just having stuff foisted on us that actually isn't that helpful, or is there a pathway to enhancing mm. what you do without it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a really interesting debate or conversation, I would say, in the uh, the Feldenkrais communities. You know, why do we need to prove this to anybody? Mm -hmm. Why is it? And it's really because if if you kind of back it off and kind of like look from a 10,000 foot kind of angle to this is, well, we're trying to get it uh, validated and at the same time we want more people to do it. Well, people are used to this idea of insurance paying for things Uh Mm -hmm. and when insurance pays for things then they want proof that it's actually going to happen and so forth and so on. 
Um, so I think whatever somatic practice is happening, uh, they run into this problem because it's a, insurance doesn't pay for it, that the people's experience of tasting the apricot generates why they're going mm-hmm. to do it. Right. And, and so that's the reason that we run into that yeah. conundrum and so forth. And yes. So yeah. um, you know, a lot of the work that I do in terms of HCI design is more in the art space. And we could say it's because I'm an artist, which is true. Um, but it's also because I find that a lot of times art practices are undoing some of these consumer models right. and exploring ways of understanding the relationship between bodies, soma, and technology in ways that can't be are not being currently mm-hmm. done by industry. Um, and, and so it's sort of in a way, and this is what I think art does oftentimes, is sort of questions through practice-based models how how we're relating. So this is one of the reasons I got really into haptics, mm-hmm. right? Like touch-based interaction. I was like, well, if we want, if we want people to be more aware, one of the things I feel like we need to do is move out of a, a vision-centric model for understanding what's going on with these technologies. And so if we're asking, if we're keeping it in this sort of fuzzy space of experience where we're actually engaging our bodies in the discourse, how could that start to at least pull on that thread a right. little bit? Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it, this is where I feel like oftentimes the arts gets relegated um, in academic spaces into like this sort of like you know exploration of aesthetics but I think particularly in this a- area of technology there's a, there's far more going on in integrating and questioning and working with sciences and and you know a lot of the work that comes from somatics is re- deeply related to anatomy sciences and a lot of the practitioners came out of science-based practices that 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 co-option that their collaborations always been there we just tend to reinforce the division through a lot of our other areas mm-hmm. so I I'm sitting here thinking about with my legs crossed. I would add. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I noticed that. By the I, way. Know, I know. I know. Um, but I'm thinking about this woman that I met. Her name is Mary. We met in the um, Martin Luther King Day March, mm. and while we were walking, her Fitbit buzzed, and she said, "Oh, I got my 8,000 steps," and that's how mm-hmm. she had herself set. And so I then, because I'm who I am, I was like, "Oh, how long have you been wearing your Fitbit?" Why did you start to wear it? Um, you know, I needed to lose weight. I wanted to get healthier. I started wearing it last New Year's Day, and it's great for me. And I don't always get to get up and walk around during my day at work. I have a desk mm-hmm. job. And so for me, I see that there is the work that, as somatic practitioners, you do is quite rarefied by its nature of being individually transmitted. And it occurs to me that there are people like Mary, who lives in West Phoenix, has a desk job, Mm -hmm. was there with her daughter's Girl Scout troop, which was awesome, who will never have the opportunity to encounter a somatic practitioner or be brought into this world through an art practice or some other kind of movement practice. And it seems to me that there's an opportunity for consumer technology to act as a gateway into this whole part whole experience that can move people into a different type of understanding of their body and a different sort of... um, Uh, a different way that they can live their lives and make their lives better. So if the tech that we have isn't doing that well in a 
populist way, then it strikes me that our technology community has some work to do to reach the masses, mm -hmm. right? Right, right? We're not doing a good job now, but to me, that doesn't mean, all right, well, too bad. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's, you, but you bring something up, and, and this is, reminds me of your work too, is that there's still a human factor, right? Yeah. Because the device itself, in the way it's currently designed, is going to keep you connected to the device itself. Right. It is not in any way, because it's not monetarily advantageous for a company to express that it might help you move to a next phase where you don't need it anymore, right? right? Yeah. So there is something, you know, with it being wrapped up into our capitalistic market, mm -hmm currently would not do that. Now this is where a mediator having access, or if it were to, uh, you know, despite its own in needs as a sort of consumer entity, push you to be aware of the fact that there are people in a lot of places who are practicing and offering somatic practice opportunities right. um that this it, it's it's not not there it's just not necessarily something that we are exposed to in the general populace right this could be a mediation space uh -huh. but we also have to recognize that it potentially then works against that consumer model that a lot of these devices ascribe to yeah, yeah. so a uh, question is how do you so how do you measure creativity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, let's ask. We can ask Betsy DeVos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 well, the reason I say that is that, that, that when I when I teach, and one of the parts of Feldenkrais is we slow it down, we slow mm -hmm. it down, mm -hmm. and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, so that that the initiation in between the actual thought and the initiation and the movement, I say that that there's a space mm -hmm. of time and it isn't a space of uh, you, um, I, I say you can't really measure it mm -hmm. uh, because there's a space between the the actual thought and the initiation of movement where creativity lives mm -hmm. sure all right I like and that. I don't know how to I mean, that's where the Fosbury flop came from, right? Right, right. right. But but it's it's where human ingenuity and intuition and all the complexity of, of how our mm -hmm. minds work begins yeah. to sort of add something. Right, and so I think yes. if you answer that question, that what you know, Jessica was bringing up mm -hmm. was very, uh, I think, very accurate, but would also say, okay, well, if you can, cre well, you know, and there are mindfulness practices out mm -hmm. there that... That, that try and create more of that space, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So. But but now we're talking less about things that actually sense something that you can mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm. and give you additional feedback to systems that actually work with you to co-create, if you like, mm -hmm. yeah. what you do. Well, I think that's where you have to go. I, yes. think yeah. that yes. I think if you do the other part, then yeah. it just becomes... And, and I must say, what, what fascinates me about this, I mean, so we've, we've got our brains and we've got our whole nervous system with an incredible array of signals come in. I, we've got a massive amount of data mm -hmm. that our brain is processing exactly, and responding and to. Exactly, and we're not measuring it. But we, no, but, 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 <laughs> but, 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 but then we think, so we've got this gazillion things going on and we think if we add one more signal mm. to that, we can somehow transform mm. ourselves. Somehow mm -hmm. I think there's got to be a different mindset. Well, and this is something, this is, I, I was kind of, you yes. know, in a joking way, but like, my question is, is like, why measure? Like, why are we obsessed with measurement? Like, 
Like, we, I mean, really stepping back and being like, like, why this obsession? Like, where does this obsession with quantification mm-hmm. right. come from? And can we, like, maybe perhaps consider that it is a very culturally specific obsession? So I, so I can give you a, a hard natural scientist's answer. To I that. think that's a great yeah. answer because yeah. I think that's no, part of right. the right. So, 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 not that I fully buy into this, but but the so, so the qualified, but the party that's line, come take but the away. party line is is if you've got something that seems to be working mm-hmm. the way to scale it up and make it work even better is to understand mm-hmm. why it's working so mm-hmm. then you can extend it um, but there's also a flip side to that and that is if you've got something that's working in a specific case yeah. to understand how to translate that to another case so it actually works for good right. rather than bad it's yeah. helpful to underlie, understand the mechanism and this, right. this brings me to these sort of like there's two implicit value systems that I hear in that one is efficiency and the other one is reproducibility, yes, right? Yes. That's and correct. so I think that there's something, this is sort of like a very gentle, I think a somatic practices is a very gentle way of saying, are these always the values that work? And are there places where these values actually work against us? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? So efficiency, we, we talk about slowing down in somatic practices to take the time that things take, which kind of works against this, this efficiency model, which says, like, let's make it as quick as possible or let's streamline mm-hmm. all the extra out, yes. which oftentimes we consider then to be unvaluable information, which we're mm-hmm. saying maybe isn't unvaluable information. Right. Maybe there's something there. And then reproducibility for me is it kind of gets back to this idea of standardization mm-hmm. or taxonomization, which again works against this idea in somatic practices. And I'm not trying to make this binary, but it's sort of like on spectrums, you know, works slightly against this idea of like, well, maybe there's certain things about me and myself that are very specific to my history, context, anatomy, whatever it may be, that are going to not fit into these categories of reproducibility, right? right? right. Yes. So just, this is sort of that like, that trickster play that I kind of like to do sometimes from that somatic perspective. No, I I think that that's exactly right because one of the big dangers of trying to quantify everything is you exclude the whole world that you can't quantify. That's exactly right. right. So as a clinical scientist, we grapple with this Mm -hmm. from doing evidence-based practice and there are a few kinds of evidence. There's Mm -hmm. a kind of, you know, we call external evidence so this is our you know dual blind randomized controlled trials which of course have limitations which is why we marry them with internal evidence Mm -hmm. and internal evidence is people's lived experience Mm -hmm. and their personal preferences and sort of institutional culture if you're talking about making uh, changes clinical changes at an institutional level and things like that Mm -hmm. Um, but we also, you know, there, there's a role for both of those things, mm-hmm. for that reproducible scientific knowledge yes. with the... And so how can we really then act at that really important nexus in yeah. that Venn diagram? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, when you think about that, and, and one of the things that we have a tendency to do is to give over our autonomy to the higher Mm-hmm. 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 Right, 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 and um, one of the things about Feldenkrais and is that it it requ- it doesn't require, but it asks of you to listen to yourself and to say what mm-hmm. really works for me. Yeah, right, and that pushes against this idea of this external data, right? Yes. And so somebody says, well, that works. That's the way to do it, mm-hmm. and then somebody else says, well, that might be, but. That's not what my apricot tastes like. Right, mm-hmm. right. And so... But, but that's still 
based on observation, but but different. So I, I, this is where I, I think there is um, merit to this coming from a physicist. Right, right, right. That we tend to sort of look at the world in, in weird ways, but one of those weird ways is looking internally to yourself mm. and trying to understand sort of what's happening and what the results are. So you're still looking at that cause and effect, but it's in a very different framework. Mm. Well, we're looking at, I wouldn't say cause and effect, because I would say that we're looking at it as how do we get to know what we're doing? So there's right. a great, great fellow in Christ saying is, first we have to know what we're doing in order for us to do what we want. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so it isn't, because, it, because, I, because I do this, yeah. doesn't, mm -hmm. it, for me it was one thing, for Jessica it was something completely different. Right, for you right. it was, so everybody else is going to have this yeah. different experience. So there's an intentionality yeah. there. Yeah, right, right. The yeah. intention, yeah. though, is mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Yeah. I saw like, you start to cross your I know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 all so conscious of this. And I'm not perfect. I do this a lot when I'm talking right. to clients. Mm -hmm. right. But, but can I get back to something, Jessica, that, that you touched on? Mm -hmm. um, and that is what we're actually trying to achieve with any of this, whether mm -hmm. you're looking at somatic practices mm -hmm. or wearable devices or whatever. What's the value we're trying to build? Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, because you, you touched on this this sort of fallacy that maybe we're trying to do stuff faster and better, but that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the value mm -hmm. that everybody wants to build. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so that seems to be a, an important starting point. And it gets back to, to your question yeah. of where are we actually trying to go? What are we trying to actually do? Right. And I think it's, it's for me, this is where I get really, uh, get this like, ugh, I can't describe feeling about wearable technology because it, it, it's like another way of reinforcing those same values that I feel like actually work against sustainable um, health and understanding of one's own sort of soma. It had to right. come back to that word. Yeah, right. um, and, and it's sort of like, it's like, for me, it feels kind of like a little snake, like a kind of a snake oil sort of, <laughs> <laughs> sort of like, a, you know, like, or like a quick, it's, it's, it's a, you know, dealing with like a quick fix of symptoms rather than looking at right, the deeper right. issues. Sure. Like, it's it, a band-aid. It's it a band-aid. Band sometimes to me, it, it, it's like, yeah. which we need sometimes. How, how can you survive <laughs> working 60 or 80 hour, hours a yeah. week? Whereas actually the question should be why, why? the heck are you working exactly. that Because see, I immediately answered <laughs> that question. Yeah. Like, well, with coffee, of course, because <laughs> yeah. we survive that. But yeah. you're right. You yes. know, why do we well, do that? One yeah. of the things, though, that I think is really interesting, Jessica said, is that we have all these, we want to do things faster. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think things faster are more efficient. Right. I think yeah. faster we, we create yeah. extra... Mm -hmm extra extra effort mm -hmm. that actually gets in our way yeah. vectors of force yeah. transmissions yes. of force through yes. the system that actually do it in an, and they get in the way and then yeah. we're actually kind of yes. spinning our wheels yes, as you exactly. might say yes. so yeah, i think exactly. that's actually kind of interesting so you're saying being the first to battle on twitter is not always the most efficient <laughs> <laughs> no 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 that's different <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, I just, it reminds me, um, what Rich is saying reminds me of a, a term that's used kind of broadly in somatics, but comes from FM Alexander, which is end gaining, which is this idea that um, we oftentimes go through our world with this sort of like goal oriented mentality. Like, for example, and Elsa Gindler talks about this in her article on gymnastic, which is an older form of um, that uh, somatic practices, this idea of like, I brush my teeth to finish the job. Like, I, brush, I must brush my teeth to make them clean. I, I must walk mm -hmm. to get to the building. I, I must put on my clothes so I can get out the door. So we do these activities all of the time with the idea of the end goal or what they're going to allow us to achieve without really being aware of like what's happening in that process. Right. And sometimes mm -hmm. by doing that end gating all of the time, we end up mm -hmm. 
reinforcing bad habits and also kind of slowing down. We we get into these ruts, these ruts of yes. habit yes. that don't allow us to actually move deeply forward in meaningful ways. Um, and it's not until we can like recognize that habit, and this is where somatics comes in, like recognizing the habituated implicit habits of our everyday life that we could actually deeply move into something else mm-hmm. um, in a meaningful way other than just like tacking on another habit. Yes. So. Okay. So, so we leave it up who, to you. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm to think, is there, is there a way forward to use, to maybe take um, the human body as out of that sort of tool role mm-hmm. and think about ways that we can use an external tool to help our integrated human body well, let me do ask better? You, let me ask you this question. If I said to you, I can give a group... Awareness to Movement Feldenkrais lesson. Yeah. Where you're going to have sensors on people, measuring uh-huh. perspiration or, you know, whatever. Whatever the whatever things whatever we can is, measure, say, sure. Like, the 10 or 12 different characteristics. Um, and I could say to you, everybody's going to change. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how everybody's going to mm-hmm, change, mm-hmm. but they're going to change. Mm-hmm. If we did it enough times, mm-hmm. would that show up? Could we say... If the, and we ask the person, mm-hmm. did you feel more spacious? Did you feel mm-hmm. uh, more sure. uh, 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 mm-hmm. flexible? Mm-hmm. Did you feel more, fr- whatever the, the internal questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And then can we match up the two at the same time? Sure, we can we mm-hmm. do a correlation? We may be able to, I don't yeah. know. Has or, anybody or, ever done or that? get a, an AI-based deep learning system to mm-hmm. actually try and see the pattern. So, so the big question mm-hmm. to me would be why? But I think we could do something. Yeah. To yeah. me, yes. to me, yes. the why is to be able to bring this intentionality, this mm-hmm. kind of somatic practice experience to, frankly, the masses mm-hmm. of people who otherwise would not be right. able to access yeah. it. Or other, we could go the other way and take it out of a sort of like a... <laughs> for lack of a better word, techno-neoliberal kind of way of working mm-hmm. and say... What a lovely piece of job. Right? And I love that there's not another word. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a very specific word. And it has... Oh, it's... Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, but, like, to say, are there other ways that we could get this out to the masses that don't sure. require us to, to mediate it through measurement? Right. Like, mm. could we look at our systems, our infrastructures of value within our broader sociocultural framework mm-hmm. and say, why is it that we feel like we have to go through measurement in order to get mm-hmm. to something deeper? Mm-hmm. One of the things that Rich mentioned is the fact that because of this proof-based ideology that like you know insurance companies won't necessarily insure these types of practices because right. it's not in the sort of proof-based measurement right. outcome. Right. So I think like yes there are maybe short-term solutions through technology but one of my sort of like thinking long-term goals is to start to really deeply question like well it is here People mm-hmm. are practicing it. Mm-hmm. It is available in many places. So, like, why? What are the access? What What is the sort of barrier to access? Sure. And are there ways that we could look at other systems, sociocultural systems, mm-hmm. and infrastructures that would allow for that to be more available? Because mm-hmm. it's there. It's just that a lot of it's it's you know issues of access related to financial components, issues of access related to time in the day, right? Sure, issues sure. of access related to. Um, urban versus rural centers. Like the, there, there's a lot of issues to access that we could look at. Yes. Yep. Europe, Absolutely. though, has an, an enormous amount mm-hmm. of, of Feldenkrais practitioners mm-hmm. and, and, and growing. Uh, mm-hmm. In the United States, not we're lagging a little bit behind, but we certainly have 
East Coast, West Coast doing mm -hmm. a, a really nice job. But, but one of the things that they do is because of the different insurances yes. mm -hmm. that, that people have the ability to go, well, I'm going to go, and instead I'm going to go to a, a physiotherapist, well, I'm going to go see a follow nurse practitioner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it makes that, uh, especially in Germany, uh, thriving. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a, I'm mm -hmm. very fortunate to have a, a very you know, thriving practice, but, but but in Germany, it's more the rule than it is the exception. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's very interesting. Well, somebody's got to do some work about our healthcare system. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who would do that. Wonder who could do that. <laughs> well, we have gone. This is we could continue this conversation all for all day, but for the interest of our podcast listeners, we should probably cut it here. But I hope that we can come back to it mm -hmm. because I still my techno neoliberalism <laughs> is not quite ready to rest. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so thank you for being thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.